We've been working through a series um, since I arrived a month or so ago called Life Together. And we've been looking at a number of um, topics that relate to us doing life together. We've looked at serving alongside difference. We all have different passions, different callings. We've uh, talked about working out conflict, having difficult conversations that can lead us towards peace. We've talked about the difference between being a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. And there is a difference, right? Being a peacekeeper means you just tiptoe around all the difficult subjects so as to not upset anybody. Being a peacekeeper means you have the difficult conversation in order to create peace. And there is a difference. Last week, dealing with offence. So in Matthew 18, we're going to be there again today if you've got a Bible and would like to turn there. So we're putting a distinguishing factor in there between when a hurt happens and when offence is taken. And there, there is a difference there because hurt is what happens to me. Offence is what's happening in me, right? And there's a, there's a vast difference there. Please understand the difference. Hurt is what happens to me, which I have little or no control over. Offence is what happens in me, which I have ample control over. The other person can hurt me, but the other person cannot control what goes on inside of me. That is my business. And I choose to either let um, offence settle in my spirit and become that bitter and twisted person, or I learn forgiveness, which is what Christ is calling me to. As Christ has forgiven you, so you are to forgive others. Today, I'm fast forwarding on from there. What about when the hurt keeps coming? What about when that toxic person just keeps coming at you? And it's not just a matter of forgiveness. It's a matter of broken trust. It's a matter of, I've got zero confidence left for that person now. I mean, they just keep hurting me over and over and over again. And Jesus has given us the recipe in Matthew 18 as far as forgiveness goes. But what about when it's the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh time? What then? Do we continue to do life together when you've got zero trust left for a person? This is a dilemma we're exploring this morning. And so let's uh, turn our attention to God's Word. Matthew 18, reading from verse 15. So we're reading again from where we uh, took last week and then on a little more. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother or sister sins, and last week we said they will, they will, go and point out their faults just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen take one or two others along so that every matter may establish, may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now we said last week that doesn't mean you hate them, right? How would you treat an unbeliever? You would love them, but your trust towards them would change. What, what you would share with a brother or sister in Christ compared to what you would share with a stranger is different. Let's read on verse 19. Truly, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. We talked last week about that being perhaps the most misquoted verse in the whole of the Bible because we use it to kickstart a prayer meeting, but actually it's a verse of judgment, right? 
It's a verse how, how judgment is established before God. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, a matter is established. It's referring back to an Old Testament principle and law. Verse 21, Peter came to Jesus and asked. You can hear the exasperation in his voice. How many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And so we're asking the Lord to add his blessing to the reading of his word. What do we do when trust is blown? How do we continue in fellowship? How do we continue to relate to someone when we just can't trust them anymore? Um, Just the mention of a person's name would conjure up feelings for some of you today of dread and of memories and of hurt. And it's like, oh, just hearing their name, it's like grinding your fingernails down a chalkboard. It, it, It grates on me just to hear their name because you haven't given that person one, two or three chances. That person has blown your trust many times over. What do we do then? Well, there comes a time where, no, we don't hate a person, but yes... Our trust towards them has been blown to pieces and is now non-existent. Where do we go then? I wonder if this is a point of exasperation Peter is here, reached here in Matthew 18. He's ready to pull his hair out. He's like, Lord, how long do I have to bear with Kyle? How long do I have to bear with Katie? Because I've got nothing left for them. They have shown over time in many and various ways they're unreliable. Do I just keep reaching out and giving them another chance? Because it gets to the point where it feels like you're throwing your pearls before swine. It's kind of like, here I am holding out my heart. This person just comes by and treads on it without any thought or sensitivity or understanding of what they're doing. And if I keep holding out my heart, it's like I'm enabling destructive behaviour. What do I do? Peter is being vulnerable here. I think the sentiments here in verse 21 that he names, and thank God Peter names them because he says what most of us only dare to think. He says it, he names it, he verbalises it. How does life work, Jesus? Because it sure ain't working here. What do I do? I've got this brother, he's such a nuisance. To continue to persist with him is unthinkable. He keeps acting like a goose. How long do I have to endure with him? Unfortunately, Jesus gives an answer that seems a bit unrealistic. Practice unlimited forgiveness, Peter. Who gets comforted by that response from Jesus? I don't find it at all helpful. I mean, just keep forgiving him, Peter, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. It's a bit confusing because the Bible says of itself it contains truth that sets us free, but I submit that doesn't sound at all liberating. Practice unlimited forgiveness towards your brother. Don't restrict forgiveness. Let it be a constant flow that just comes from your spirit, Jesus says. He puts forgiveness in an entirely new category. Don't think about it as something you occasionally call on in an emergency. No, no, no. Just make it part of your ongoing daily life. Forgiveness is just supposed to flow through you like a tap. Don't treat it as a resource in short supply. Jesus says it's as natural as your next breath. Forgiveness. Think of it like that. 
This is completely new territory for the disciples. In a first century Jewish context, the, the, the standard from the rabbis was three times. One, two, three. Three strikes and then you can wipe the person out. That was their understanding of forgiveness. So that, what, I, what I see happening here is that Peter's sort of, here's the three strikes mode that the culture was. Peter's taken it to a whole other level by saying, Jesus, how about seven? I mean, I, I know you're pretty fond of that number. I suspect Peter was expecting to get praise from Jesus, for Jesus to look upon him and smile and go, wow, you've really got it, Peter. I mean, you've, you've over-doubled the societal standard. But then Jesus goes, ah, and it's like, come up here, Peter. You, you, you know when you my standard. Now, they would have been, I think, rather confused. Here, I think Peter was expecting to wow Jesus. And yet Jesus goes, uh-uh, no, no, don't, don't think 70, seven times or 70 times, try 490. Jesus blows Peter's numbers out of the water, teaching us that forgiveness has actually got little to do with numbers and everything to do with attitude. Jesus does away with limits and calculations and formulas and he, he puts up for us his standard of unlimited forgiveness. And we'd lose our mind if we tried to count up to 490. And I think that's the very point. Do away with the scoreboard, Jesus says. Why? How is it possible? How is it possible for our hearts to tolerate being hurt that often by the same person? It's impossible. We cannot possibly do this, can we? Before you tear Matthew 18 of your Bibles in despair... Let's consider three big ideas about what forgiveness actually is before we think about how we might go practicing it. First of all, forgiveness involves honest processing. Forgiveness is a process. When we think about forgiving someone hundreds and hundreds of times, if we're using Matthew 18 as our reference point, it starts to feel cheap. Doesn't it? When you think about forgiving someone hundreds and hundreds of times, it gets a hollow ring about it. It's like we must disengage our emotions. Not true. You need not muddle up frequency with depth. Every single time, it's a process and it's a deep process. It takes work. It takes work. Jesus is calling upon us to do this deep work of forgiveness. You say, okay, John, so we, I just need to give myself time. Well, sort of. That's what our culture would say. Time heals. However, for some people, time just makes them more and more twisted. Time doesn't heal. Time plus the grace of God heals. Time just allows us to engage with the grace of God, whereby we can go through a healing process. But for some of us, time will just make us more and more and more bitter. It's time plus the grace of God that heals. But this can be a lengthy process to actually truly forgive. One of the best examples of true forgiveness is in the Old Testament. We haven't got time to read this morning, but do it in your own time. Genesis 37, it's this character by the name of Joseph. He, he takes up a fair chunk of the Bible's first book from chapter 37 to 50 of uh, Genesis. The Bible's first book is the story of this man, Joseph, and he faces the mother of all betrayals. I mean, he, he's treated so terribly 
by his family. Now, God gives us families to have our back. They had Joseph's back, all right. They were back there doing all sorts of stabbing and, and, uh, and, and, and messing him up big time. See, amongst uh, 12 sons, Joseph is dad's favourite. You know what that means? All the rest can't stand him. Right? He's dad's favourite, so all the siblings hate him with a passion and their, and their hatred for Joseph goes greater and greater every day to the point where they can't stand the sight of him any longer. And so they come up with a plan. Let's get rid of him. Let's sell him off as a slave. And their plan works. And Joseph winds up in a faraway land, alienated from everything familiar in Egypt. Despite the hardship... Joseph continues to live well. Joseph continues to, to be a godly man. And, and there's this phrase that keeps popping up in his story, and the Lord was with him, and the Lord was with him, and the Lord was with him. Even in prison, even separated from his family. So he's living godly and, he, and he's getting rewarded for his godly conduct. And he ends up rising to power in this new nation. And then one day, because he has the boss's trust, he's left alone in the house with the boss's wife. And she gives him a little wink, but he's not playing that game. He says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not going there. And because they're alone in the house, she makes up a story and says he tried to force himself on her and he ends up in prison. False accusation. And we understand he was 10 years in prison. Now, I need to say that again because sometimes that just rolls off our tongue. Oh, yeah, he spent 10 years in prison. No, he spent 10 years in prison for doing something he never did. He was unjustly treated again. But the Lord was with him. He gets restored and he ends up in this high position of authority. And I'm fast forwarding deep into the story now for the sake of time. But there comes this day where his brothers, the ones who treated him so poorly years before, end up before him not knowing that it's Joseph, their brother. It's this day of reckoning, this moment of truth where he gets to choose how he will treat them. This is the pinnacle of forgiveness right here. Because he does what most church people skip. He practices real forgiveness, not pretend forgiveness. Why do I say that? Because of what he said to them. He said to his brothers, you intended to harm me. He names the hurt. He he calls it out. He doesn't let them off the hook. You know what I hear from church people so often? It's, oh, look, doesn't matter. You didn't mean anything by it. That's not true forgiveness. True forgiveness names the hurt. True forgiveness doesn't let the other person off the hook without first doing the process. You intended to harm me. Oh, so he rubbed their nose in it. Well, not really. He finished the sentence in a restorative fashion, but God intended it for good, for the saving of many lives. Joseph doesn't bring up the pain just to highlight what bunch of rat bags these guys are. He brings it up to, to, to contrast it with the incredible grace and love that God has shown him. But he doesn't let him off the hook. He honestly processes his pain. If we had time, we'd look in Genesis where he needed to draw aside and, and weep as part of those 
conversations. This was not shallow. This was deep forgiveness. Working through our feelings, working through the hurt, and yet choosing to forgive. That's what it means to really enter into forgiveness. Forgiveness is separate from reconciliation. If I had to give Matthew 18 a headline, it would be this. Jesus expects forgiveness always. Jesus expects reconciliation sometimes. Jesus expects forgiveness always. Jesus expects reconciliation sometimes. He's realistic about reconciliation. We can't always be reconciled. It takes two willing parties to have a reconciliation. I spoke to you last week about 50% of that pie is yours. That can only mean 50% of it is not. 50% of this pie belongs to the other person and it's their response and their choice and their reaction to the situation that depends on the reconciliation happening. The Bible says as much as depends on you, live at peace. There's a part that doesn't depend on you. You can't control that. This means that forgiveness can be done in isolation, but reconciliation is always a partnership. Always, always. Reconciliation is a team sport. You need the other person to come to the game. You cannot reconcile all by yourself. You can forgive Kyle or Katie for acting like a fool. You can't be reconciled to Kyle or Katie unless they're present and own their part in the process. And the apology may never come, but forgiveness still is to flow towards them. There are people in this world with zero emotional intelligence who just seem to never recognise the amount of hurt and the trail of destruction they leave behind them. What do we do with them? We forgive. We must. We're commanded by God. We don't have an option there. But we don't muddle that up with reconciliation. That's vastly different. That always requires an apology, an admittance from the other person that they've actually caused hurt. You need them to repent if you are to be reconciled. You need them to admit what they've done wrong and take ownership for their side of the situation. Christ offers forgiveness to whom? The entire world. The entire world. So forgiveness is available to everyone. Now someone will respond, cool, we're all good with God then. Uh Uh-uh. What triggers that forgiveness to actually become a reality in my life? My repentance does. My humbling myself before God. My admittance, my honesty to say, God, I've messed up and I put up my hand and that reconciliation can actually begin to flow. The forgiveness isn't the issue, but the reconciliation only happens off the basis of me owning up. Same with human relationships. Until, until that other person, or sometimes it's you, hello, sometimes it'll be you. Until the person in the wrong puts up their hand, and sometimes it's both, but they put up their hand and admit their part of the situation. Full reconciliation cannot take place. Forgiveness is different from reconciliation. Understand the difference. Don't muddle the two, or you'll be carrying around a lot of false responsibility. You'll be carrying around the weight of the world, thinking it's always your fault. 
that you're not talking with that person anymore. Sometimes you need to throw up your hands and say, I've done all I possibly can do. As much as depends on you, live at peace. It's God's job to move on the heart of the other person and create that humility and create that desire to experience unity and restoration. Let's move to our final consideration. Forgiveness is not rushing to trust again. Really, really, really important. Forgiveness is not rushing to trust a person again. Forgiveness is not trust. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. There's an old saying that says, once bitten, twice shy. Good reason for that shyness. Hey, when you've had a chunk or two taken out of you, it makes you think about engaging in a relationship with that person. You soon learn not everyone's trustworthy, hey? You soon learn that in life. We didn't realise that coming out of the womb. We came out bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, thinking, everybody's my friend. And after a few chunks here and there, you go, maybe not. Maybe not everyone does have good intentions. It's one of the best childhood characteristics. Their trust meter is still fully engaged, you know, like it's just never been tainted. I take my young girls to the park and they come back five minutes later, Dad, I made a new friend, I made a new friend. Us adults were a little bit more suspicious of people that want to move too quick, too fast, hey. We know better. Us big people, we know better than to trust people too soon. We've got the scars to prove it. We don't hand out our trust willy-nilly. Rather than seeing this hesitation as a negative thing, and and most certainly it can be if it's fear-driven. If it's a fear-driven caution, then then yeah, that's, that's not healthy. And uh, actually, I had a day out with the Lord the other day where I had to process some stuff and some hurts in my life and that relate to trust. And, and the Lord did some deep work in me in this space and showed me that on some occasions, for me, it's been fear-driven. That, that's not good. That's unhealthy. On the other hand, there's some wisdom here. There's some wisdom here. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you that Christ himself was slow to trust. Let me show it to you in John 2. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs Jesus was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. Some translations will say he knew their hearts. He knew what was really in their hearts. They're coming to him, bowing down, saying, Jesus, you're the best thing since sliced bread. And he's like, "Mm, really? (laughs) He wasn't so quick to rush in and trust. So what's Jesus saying to us? Be slow to trust. Be slow to trust. Be measured in your handing out of trust. Give it away slowly. I'm going to suggest this. There's nothing to lose by making people earn your trust slowly over time. There's everything to lose by handing out your trust rapidly and having your heart trod on. Okay? There's nothing to lose by making people earn your trust over time. There's everything to lose by handing out trust in quick succession without watching a person's conduct and checking out whether they're safe or not. Okay, John, if your goal was to turn me into a cynic today, job well done. We've ticked that box. 
Is that the point? Well, it wasn't my motivation. We'll get to cynicism in a second. My goal is to teach you to guard your heart. Because the Bible says, above all else, guard your heart. Above all else, guard your heart. Don't give everybody your heart. Don't let everybody you meet speak into your life at a level that's heart level. Guard your heart. Don't provide everyone access into your emotional well-being. Guard your heart. Learn to filter who you allow in to your inner world. If that person has left you reeling time and time again with their cutting words, what do I do, John? I get to cut them off, get to chop them out of my life? Well, not necessarily, but you adjust the amount of hard access that person has got, right? They've shown themselves unworthy of your trust, at least at this point in time. Forgive, yes, absolutely, every time without delay. Trust, Uh uh-uh, be slow. Be slow to entrust your heart to them. God commands forgiveness, but you know what God doesn't command? He doesn't command for us to trust one another. Strange. Go through your New Testament and prove me wrong. I haven't found it yet. There's about 71 another commands in the New Testament. Love one another. Encourage one another. Pray for one another. There's always one another commands that relate to unity and us doing life together. But I haven't found the one yet that says trust one another. It says trust the Lord, but doesn't say trust one another. This is something we we ought to be very slow to do. So, John, I trust no one and then I'll never get hurt again, right? No, no. Let's grapple with this principle. Honour is for everyone. Respect is for few. Honour is for everyone. Respect is for few. Honour is for everyone because they're made in the image of God. They don't have to do anything. And they deserve our honour just by breathing, just by turning up, just by putting themselves in front of you. You honour a person because of who their creator is. You don't have to agree with their worldview. You don't have to like their behaviour. You don't have to like their choice of movies. You don't have to like anything about them. But you can honour them. You can be friendly. You can love on them. You can pour honour towards them because they're made in the image of the most high God. Respect is different. I quote Craig Rochelle here, honour is given, respect is earned. Honour is given, respect is earned. I can honour anyone and everyone, and I should, because they have value, because they're made in God's image. I don't have to respect everybody. What's the difference? Well, the difference is what's going on in me internally You would hope that the other person on the other end of that experience doesn't know the difference. But in actuality, what I'm telling you is hold your respect just for the few. Hold your respect for those who've deserved it. Who deserves it? Those who've been in your life 10 years and shown themselves faithful time and time and time again. They deserve respect. It's behavioural. They turned up when they said they would be there. They didn't lie. They didn't cheat. They did the right thing by you. Respect them. It's behavioural. Respect them. Honour, though, is different. 
We don't need to know a person well. We don't need to trust a person. We can just honour them because they have value before God. Even if they've harmed you many, many, many times, you've had to forgive them many, many, many times, you can still extend grace and forgiveness and friendship and honour towards them just because they're a human being. Therefore, they deserve it. Do you understand the difference? This helps us. This helps us separate forgiveness and reconciliation. It's kind of a line that that helps me know. It, It keeps me from cynicism because that person that's hurt me over and over again, I feel like giving them nothing. And God says, no, no, you've got to honour them. You continue to love on them. You continue to be friendly. You continue to to uphold your side of the equation by honouring them. But, But the respect part, that's a special thing and that's held for the few. Has the music team come this morning? Can I suggest that forgiveness this morning could be as simple as this, entrusting God with our pain. Entrusting God with our pain, just giving it over to him Instead of wanting to strike back at the person who's hurt us, it's, it's bringing that confusion, that ugliness, that hurt before the presence of God. There's 101 legitimate definitions for forgiveness. This is just one. We're going to sing in closing this morning, Amazing Grace. And I just invite you as we sing this song to Bring all of these broken pieces of your life and relationship before the living God. And maybe today for you, the reconciliation needs to first start with God before you can experience it with others. If you've wandered from God or if you've never actually given Him preeminence in your heart, you've never told God, I trust you. giving my life over and that's the starting point to all this would you stand for prayer oh Lord we need your spirit to breathe upon us afresh today to help us not hide when we're being hurt but to bring it to you And to entrust you, God, with those painful parts of our lives that we can't understand. And so, Lord, we surrender to you today. We thank you, God, that you are the safe place. You are the only safe place for the desires of the human heart. And so we bring them to you, God. And we thank you that you are big enough to carry us forward. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the friend that sticks closer than a brother. You are the one that will never let us down. Please heal our broken hearts. Please help us treat one another with honour. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.